Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. We all want our kids to be able to regulate themselves, don't we? It feels like one of the main goals of parenting is how we're able to get our kids to the stage where they can handle big emotions, frustrations, and the minor struggles on their own. Like most things that are developmental in nature, parents can play a key role in how this happens. This week, we explore the issue of how parents can help their children's emotion regulation development with renowned researcher Dr. Lisa Gatsky-Kopp. From parenting in infancy to the synchrony between parent and child, the insights she has gleaned from years of research are not to be missed. I am so thrilled to have with me today Dr. Lisa Gatsky-Kopp. She is a professor of human development and family studies at Penn State University. Her research focus is on the development of emotional and behavioral problems in childhood. She is interested in the neurobiological mechanisms that underlie emotion regulation, impulsivity, and decision-making, as well as examining how environmental and experiential factors impact neurobiological development. She is also involved in several collaborative projects aimed at incorporating knowledge from basic psychophysiological research into preventative intervention programs. She directs the dual title doctoral program in social behavioral neuroscience at Penn State and is a senior editor for the journal Psychophysiology. Thank you so much for being here today. That's quite the resume. It's quite a lot of big words. <laughs> I know. And for anyone that missed it, I messed up doing that the first time. So <laughs> that's how big they are. <laughs> no, You're you have fun. done some amazing work in this field in children's affective regulation and everything that we're going to be talking about today. But as I always like to ask and get a sense of how did you get involved in this field? How did you become interested in understanding, you know, these peer like child development, affective development, the psychophysiology of it all? Where did that come from? Yeah, that's a that's a great question and a kind of complicated one because I actually did not start out um, studying or interested in children at all. It was more um, interested, you know, I had a, a background in biology um, and was interested in understanding how the brain was responsible for some of the behaviors that that we do and with a real interest in some of the behaviors that we think about as being unthinkable. So I was very interested in understanding violent behavior. This was a time, you know, when I was starting grad school, um, when the Columbine shooting had just happened. Um, and, And to me, this idea of these just very massive transgressions that you just think to yourself, well, how, how did we get here? You know, that's just an unreasonable behavior. Um, and and at the time, there was a lot of um, renewed interest and emphasis in psychology on, on biological mechanisms because we just got the technology to do brain imaging. And there was a lot of exciting things happening in genetics. And um, so it seemed like this was an opportunity to really look for answers that we hadn't been able to find before. Um, But what happened was that I started doing these research projects and interviewing lots and lots of research participants and, you know, very extensive sort of diagnostic interviewing. And it became very quickly clear to me that the action was happening very early in life, that this was sort of not, not some sort of phenomenon that just emerged one day and it was not, there was no easy, simple cause that we could just point to. And so we just need to fix that. It was a complex unfolding of processes in people's lives that needed to be 
parsed apart in more detail. And so I just became progressively more and more and more and more interested in earlier and earlier in life. That it makes a lot of sense. I can see how you end up there from where you started, but I also see how you could start where you started, not even thinking <laughs> about the early ideology of everything like this. It's because um, it is, it's, it's a fascinating and scary topic, I think, to really delve into because there's just such huge implications for what you're doing. Yeah. And it's the fun thing about having an academic career is that you get to constantly be changing and asking new questions and pursuing new answers and taking, you know, going where the science is leading you. Which is amazing. So as we start to talk about your research here, one of the things that I personally love about it and was drawn to was the fact that you utilize in most of your research really diverse populations. And we're looking at both, you know, racially, but also socioeconomically. Um, and this is really in contrast. I mean, when I did my PhD <laughs> in psychology, there is kind of the acknowledgement <laughs> that a huge amount of the research here is white middle class families, especially with kids, because who has the time to come in and do all this work. So we're really I mean, it's that weird phenomenon, right, of the Western educated. Yep. But I think we have to add into that. I almost want to say white, you know, educated and rich yeah. people going in. So how did you end up in this? Was this an intentional choice to start being as diverse as you are? Or how did that come you know, about? Interestingly, no. Um, and because I think in the beginning, um, as a as a neurobiology person, I would have put money on the idea that human is human, right? That we are, we are all coming from the same um, processes that, you know, our genetic makeup that makes us look different than one another is actually quite small. <laughs> the majority of our genes are very common and, and our brain development is going to be um, governed by that. But what happened um, was that when I first came to Penn State, to get involved in a research project that was um, taking place in a very uh, urban, high-risk type of environment. So um, it did lead to a lot more racial diversity, but a lot of um, socioeconomic, um, lower level socioeconomic functioning. This was a district that had had a lot of um, funding problems, performance problems, high crime rates in the neighborhood. So a very different kind of environment. Um, and not near the university. And so we actually um, had to build out a mobile research lab in an RV and drive it to the schools to be able to do this type of research. And so um, that, you know, I did the research, collected the data, and I think it was probably the first paper that we tried to publish with these data. One of the reviewers did push back on the sample. And I remember very clearly they said, uh, that this sample doesn't generalize to anyone other than who the researcher wanted to study. And it, that really struck me because I thought, well, what sample generalizes beyond who you wanted to study? <laughs> like, and, and then, you know, it felt like implied and there was sort of a question of why would you want to study these people or, or why would this sample have anything to do with other kids. Um, and so I, I had to craft a response to that and really, um, I said, I think was a turning point in my career that made me kind of uh, 
operationalize the importance of having this diversity in our particular type of research and really demonstrate that majority of people who have um, clinical disorders, who have problems, emotional, behavioral problems, they're not identified. They're not getting treatment. We know that only about a third of the people who are probably suffering from these problems are actually in a doctor's office, in a clinic office. And if that's how we're doing our recruiting, we're really getting a select group, right? We're not getting, we are not representing the people that we have been mandated to represent. And so that really um, sparked kind of a a long-term interest in me because I, I think that that is a problem in, like you're saying, in all psychology research and on all fields generally. Um, But for psychophysiology research, for the type of work that I'd like to do, it's even worse because a lot of our equipment is big and cumbersome and sensitive and it doesn't travel well and it's housed in a university. And so if you take how many people in the U.S. actually live within you know, 20 minutes of a major research university, it's not a lot of people, right? And then you start to say, well, it's the people who are available in the middle of the day. It's the people who can take the time to come in and want to participate. It's the people who aren't afraid of these institutions because they've been marginalized by them for so long. And so it becomes more and more um, (laughs) non-general of the the population. And so, think that that experience of saying how can we take this technology out of the out of the ivory tower so to speak and actually get into the to the communities um it was just a really important experience for me as a scientist that I think has been you know changing the way I do my work ever since I feel like that response you had is a reason why reviewers shouldn't be blind all the time. I mean, (laughs) when that person say it to your face is kind of, you know, that it's like online reviewing is like the ultimate online social media of I get to say whatever I want about your work, but I never have to say it to your face so I can be (laughs) however whatever I want to be at that point. So it is, I can't believe someone even asked that because that is such a, do you think that the middle-class white child represents everyone? I mean, is because that, that's really seems like where yeah. they're going. Well, I hope that my response changed their point of view as well. So to their credit, I mean, I, I answered back in a long, several pages of comments to explain why that wasn't very good. And the paper did get published. So hopefully that person had their eyes opened on that. Thing. <laughs> I hope so. Um, you know, something you said there made me think, you know, your answer at the beginning about this idea that we're all the same and we share the genes and everything. It just triggered for me this idea of epi, pardon me, epigenetics. Um, I was about to say epidemiology because I've been talking about COVID all day with other people <laughs> and, and everything, but um, it's everybody's word right now. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's the word on the mind now. But um, no, with epigenetics and how you know, does that play a large role, do you think, in what you're looking at and in in what you're finding? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, one of the things, like I said, about having an academic career is getting to constantly learn and then realize, you know, that you were naive before. And so as much as I would have thought that we have all of this sort of human commonality, I think the one thing that I can say for certain is, you know, who we are as individuals is built over time. It is a changing. There is no 
blueprint for the person that you're going to become. It is a function of your experiences and your exposures and your how you put out in the world and what puts back onto you. And that that happens in terms of the neural pathways that get laid down, but also how our genes get turned on and off are based on, you know, what foods we might be eating or um, how much stress we might be experiencing or how much sleep we're beginning on a regular basis. And all of these things are so unique to each person that um, that we can't we can't say there's a universal kind of human experience. And and I think for me also kind of studying psychopathology and trying to understand, you know, anything from depression to kind of conduct problems or ADHD, um, what we find more than anything is that it's not one thing. So just because we might say, you know, this person feels depressed and down most of the day, every day, that's describing a behavior. But the cause of that behavior might be different for one person than another. And so getting into these sort of biological systems allows us to get some insight into that. So two people who might look the same on the surface actually have some sort of different mechanism underlying that. And, you know, we, we need to understand a lot more of that. And we see that you know, a lot in medicine that you know certain drugs work for certain people and not other people, and we don't know why. And that's a, you know an area that we need to dig into much more deeply. But that that really gets more at, at that that diversity and the fact that we can't just be looking for one prototype or one person to represent what does this phenomenon look like, um, because it could be very different based on people who have just really very different life experiences than someone else. It also makes me think about the fact that you do do a lot of work in in taking what you find to build, you know, preventative or intervention measures. And I think, I mean, I'm trying to phrase the question here, but it seems like <laughs> the intervention or prevention we would come up with if you were to study a middle class white population might not be very relevant for more diverse samples. So do you think that this enables you to better serve? I mean, again, you look at a population for a reason because presumably you're trying to study that population. Um, but do you think that that helps with respect to the interventions and the preventative measures that you come up with? Yeah, I think that's something that that we definitely do see that a lot of um, you know, large-scale preventative intervention programs that might be, you know, administered through the community or through schools um, often were developed in sort of, you know, middle-class, predominantly white kind of environments where things are functioning fairly well for everyone. And you might have, you know, some people who are struggling and you want to make sure those people are getting helped. Um, but it, it as an environment, as a setting for that delivery is pretty high functioning. Um, and so that has been something over the past few decades and that, that we've learned in our own research is when you take that package and you put it in an environment that as a setting isn't as functioning as, you know, and, and we can talk about, you know, the school environment and is that a school environment that's getting a lot of um, has a good climate for the teachers where they feel professionally supported, where they feel like this is worth their investment or that they're getting appreciated for the work that they're doing or it's not interfering with what they need to accomplish academically. And, you know, there, there's good buy-in and delivery. 
that when you try to take something that works well in a in an easy setting and put it in a different setting, you don't get the same results that that you would get otherwise. And I think um, that's an important thing to think about in terms of how are we going to modify for this environment. With the work that I do, we are also looking at you know how do we want to modify it for this kid. So there's you know a general program. A lot of times when we build these kind of preventive intervention programs, we're kind of throwing all of it in. Like we, it might be this, it might be this. We're gonna like we're gonna try and address all the problems, and that might lead to kind of a little bit of everything. Um, where we what we might find is that this kid needed a lot of piece A, and they didn't really need piece C. But this kid could benefit from both piece A and piece B. And, and, and if we can get better at understanding some of that, that kind of the differences between what each kid needs, then we can start making this little like, where do we want to spend our time and energy for this particular situation? Makes so much sense. Um, and so on that, I actually want to get into some of your research. And I will be clear, you have a lot. So I know we won't be able to actually, like, we're going to scratch the surface here. You don't look it. So I'm going to say, I mean, fantastic. Um, but I want to really focus today, and maybe I can get you back again for more, but on the emotional or affective development work that you've done um, and some of the factors that surround this regulation, the development. And I think to start there, I know you utilize a ton of physiological measures and you measure things like um, respiratory sinus arrhythmia. And I feel like we need to set a foundation for people listening <laughs> Or, I mean, we get into things that don't make sense. So can you tell us a bit about these key measures that you tend to use? Um, and what are they for? Why do we look at them? Why do we care? What do they tell us about emotion regulation? Because I do know so many parents, and it's something I contend with, really feel that emotion regulation is visible. And that if a child is is quiet and calm, they're regulated. And as you know, I, I hope you'll back me up on that's not always the case um, mm -hmm. with things that it can look a lot different. And we have a lot of flexibility there. But I think everyone needs to be on the, the same page as to what we're talking about. So do you mind? <laughs> no, yeah, absolutely. I think sometimes it's hard for people to think about like, well, you know, even when we're doing the studies, you know, why, why do you want to know how my heart beats or how, you know, um, sweat is moving through my hands and my skin? And, um, and, and I will say that we look at these measures. So some of these things are controlled by the autonomic nervous system and the brain is your central nervous system, but your brain sits there, you know, if you think about that movie Inside Out, right, and there's just sort of all the all the little characters in there in the control center, well, it has to get your body to do all the things it wants you to do. So it has to have a way to send that signal out and say, you know, when you decide I'm going to get up this morning and go to work, you have to give your body the energy to do that, right? You got to get out of bed, <laughs> you got to get moving and there's muscles that need blood flow and you need to have activity. And you also don't want it to be too aroused because you need to pay attention and you need to tune out other, um, other kinds of conflicting ideas and goals and, and kind of keep yourself motivated towards, you know, maybe you have to remind yourself or like you get a vacation next week. And so you kind of have all of these, all of these activities are kind of working together in your brain to coordinate your body executing the plan. And so 
one of the things we can do is sort of go in and measure what's what did your brain tell your body to do because it's often a lot times easier for us to measure that than to go in and measure your brain directly <laughs> and so when people I think like you're saying parents are kind of saying I should be able to see this emotion and sometimes that's true and we know that for ourselves because if you've ever gotten almost in a car accident or had to get up and give a speech or something where you feel like your heart is pounding you might be sweating your mouth goes dry like you know that your body is is giving you all of these emotional cues and what I usually explain it as with our with our special sensors, they're sensitive enough to be able to detect these things happening even when you don't perceive it. So it doesn't have to get to that level for us to be able to see that there's changes happening in your heart or in your sweating. And, um, you know, we, we know that that's where, you know, drives a lot of emotion. Like there's, it's not a coincidence that the symbol for love is a heart, right? It's not a brain because we feel a lot of things that are happening. And so when we measure, um, you know, these, uh, these biomarkers, we're really trying to think about and, and, and using the evidence that say these things move with certain psychological or, you know, cognitive kind of processes. So the one that you mentioned is a is a big word, right? Respiratory sinus arrhythmia sounds like a very big word. And what that is really is just asking how much does your heartbeat change as you're breathing? And that's where the respiratory kind of comes in. And what when we're maximally calm and everything is content and, and we're not really needing to do anything or be active for anything, your heart wants to be as efficiently as possible. That's a, wants to not waste any heartbeats so it'll speed up when you breathe in and there's oxygen to be gathered and when you breathe out it's going to slow down because it doesn't it's trying to be conservative with the number of heartbeats and so that's why a lot of times relaxation techniques will focus on your breathing focus on slowing down your breathing and that can be a good tool to help kick in that system so we often look at respiratory sinus arrhythmia as sort of a marker of how well we're engaging our, our regulatory side of that autonomic nervous system. And if we kind of um, you cut any of this out, if you want to go on too much. This is fascinating. No, 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 please. You've explained it better than I've ever been able to do to people because I've tried to cover okay. studies on this and been like, well, it's kind of like the change in heartbeat. I'm like, I get it to a degree, but this is way better. So please keep going. Yeah. So when, so we, we have these two branches of the autonomic nervous system. We have that sympathetic nervous system, and that's what we think about fight or flight, right? I gotta, I gotta run. I gotta, like, I almost got in that car accident. I'm terrified, or I just, you know, need to react in some imme immediate dramatic way. And then we have the parasympathetic nervous system, and these two branches are kind of both able to work and send messages, and they both connect to the heart, and so they're both able to kind of control parts of the body but we think about that parasympathetic nervous system as the one that is if if it's in control it's got a better regulated handle on your system so it can it can move in and out and it can allow you to increase your arousal and do the things you need to do um, but it's also associated with 
you know, having better cognitive control, having better emotion regulation, being able to focus or pay attention to things. And when we get that sympathetic arousal, a lot of times that's, that's sort of too high, too much for everyday activities. And you want to be able to kind of rein it back in very quickly. So sometimes emotion regulation is about, you know, being able to go up and down very quickly and not, not once you go up kind of being there for a while, you need to kind of be able to rein it in. And so that's why we're often interested in that, that parasympathetic marker, that respiratory sinus arrhythmia. And I love that you just mentioned that going up and down, because as we'll get to the studies here, I think it's so important for people to remember that it's not about not going up ever. Because I yeah, think that's sometimes right. a misconception as well, is that our kids yeah. or us may not regulate because we go up. And it's not about going up. Lots of things are going to cause us to go up. I mean, you wouldn't want to have yeah. a potential car like close call car accident and not go up because that means you're not getting your spider senses going to be able to navigate the situation. Um, it's just that when it doesn't happen, you'll want it to come back down as quickly as possible. So I think that's so important um, that you brought up that kind of up and down there because that's such a crucial piece. So let's start with infancy. Because you have some work looking at, I mean, what is most relevant for people listening, probably, which is parenting on um, infant parent during infancy and the early years. So parental sensitivity. And then you were able to follow up on children's emotional trajectories. Let me, age is nine and 10. So we're looking at a 10 year, like oh, longitudinal yeah, study here. We have a great, great study where we've been following these families since the child was born. And we were just talking about this morning on a research call, they are starting to turn 18 this next month. <laughs> so, oh, my God. We have amazing families who've really stuck it out with us because we have we have studied them for a long time. So we've been in their homes many, many times. They're very gracious. <laughs> wow. Well, so I mean, because this is part of, I think, one of your larger collaborative projects, right? The Family Life Project? Yeah, the Family yes. Life Project. Okay. So you did find an effect. I'm going to let you tell everything, but you did find something to do with sensitive parenting um, and emotional control. So how did you look at this and what were the findings that we can take home from this? Yeah, so this this was a great study. This was done by a postdoc who was working with me, Alonda Murphy, and uh, she was looking at. So we we did have data from the families in the child's infancy. They they very graciously let us come into their home with video cameras, um, and we would have um, just interactions with the with the baby at the different ages. Um, it's just some game play or toy that the parent could interact with the child and. And that's where we kind of coded this sort of um, sensitive parenting idea. And sensitive parenting, you know, such a vague term <laughs> sort of to try and understand. And it can be defined in different ways, but usually, you know, and it changes depending on what, what is age appropriate for the child. But usually being um, responsive to the child, and that can mean also kind of recognizing when the child is not interested in something or... Um, is overstimulated and you want to be able to kind of tone down how you're interacting. So it doesn't just mean, you know, taking the toy and putting it up in the baby's face and, you know, playing with them. It means kind of reading the child's cues and being able to understand and take the lead of what the child is interested in. And so we have um, some elaborate kind of behavioral codes that try to capture that. Um, and 
what she was looking at, you know, was sort of understanding how does this, how does that help establish a system or what we call kind of a cascade of development, right? So it's, um, you know, it in and of itself maybe doesn't do anything magical, but how does that help the child at that that age accomplish that developmental goal of being able to control or or kind of modulate their own emotions? Um, and you know, how does that then or does it carry forward in ways that we can see throughout the child's life? And so she's very interested in executive functioning, and that's sort of the abilities that we expect to see coming out in, in preschool, right? So we kind of, that difference between the preschool kid and knowing that they're kind of ready for school is often those executive function skills. So being able to inhibit something, if I, you know, I need to be able to sit in my chair or raise my hand if I want to ask a question, um, those kinds of skills that really nobody comes on into this earth with those skills. <laughs> so they have a limited amount of time to get them pulled together and ready for kind of social interactions. And so she was really looking at sensitive parenting as a way that might be facilitating that because it, it really, um, emotion regulation and helping um, somebody be able to modulate their emotions is really an important precursor to being able to kind of establish some of those more um, higher level kind of cognitive skills. And so when we talk about emotion regulation or parents helping their child regulate emotions in infancy, you know, in early infancy, the parent's doing all the work. Right? So if the child cries and it's the parent's job to fix it and to help the child kind of calm down. And then as you get older, the goal becomes to help transition that to where the child begins to take on some of that. Um, but it, it really does rely on modeling that behavior and and by comforting the child when they're upset when they're too young to do it themselves you really set up the standard that that is what's supposed to follow what's supposed to follow me being upset is that I get calmed down and that that's the cycle and that I don't just hang out there and I'm left to my own devices until I exhaust myself kind of thing so I love that you mentioned that idea of not hanging out and kind of co-regulation. I want to just ask a quick thing to clarify here because it's something I've always said, and you may tell me I'm completely wrong, but I always I like feel it. like it's important. <laughs> <laughs> You're allowed to. It's okay. Um, is that It also depends on the level of distress that kids are feeling because I do think sometimes we get this idea that children are supposed to regulate completely suddenly. Like I sometimes see parents having higher expectations for their children's emotional regulation than they do their own. And yes. I think it's so important to just, you know, get to the point that yes, we are transitioning and we do want to help our kids understand that we calm them and go, and eventually they take some of that on, but that there's also going to be times when just like as an adult, I might turn to my partner for support during really hard times that we always want to be there to, serve as that kind of buffer for them. Is that fair? Yeah. So I think, you know, maybe what you're getting at too, is that distinction about like the age, because how much distress you expect the, the child to tolerate will grow. Right. So it absolutely is true that just because your child is having a tantrum does not mean that you pick them up and love and stroke their hair and tell them everything's going to be okay. You know, <laughs> That there are times when 
um, it may be that you have to kind of let it run its course until they kind of exhaust themselves. But your point was spot on about the parents need to also be thinking about their own regulation. And that's where I think kicks in at that moment, because a lot of times what we do as parents is very selfish <laughs> and it is about our own distress and it's not serving the child in the best needs, right? So a lot of times when the kid is throwing that temper tantrum in a public place, you're motivated to stop it because you're distressed. I don't want to see my child distressed. I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to be, I don't want to deal with this. I am tired. I am angry. This sucks. Um, and however you react to that, if it's, you know, anger and control of like, get up, we're leaving or bribery or placation, um, it's often meant to reduce your own distress and it doesn't help the child. So I think where you, what you want in a parenting situation like that is even if you're not solving the child's problem and making them calm down, if you maintain your own calmness, you are still modeling this, like I'm here, come back to me. You're serving as sort of that anchor point of this is the state that we should be in right now. You've gone off into this other state. I'm going to stay here and bring you back to me as I can. I'm not going to grab you <laughs> or, um, you know, escalate. So one of the, the, there's this meme that I love and I use it in one of the um, teacher interventions that we do, but it says, whenever you think about fighting fire with fire, remember that the fire department usually uses water. <laughs> so I love that. That's, <laughs> I've heard a similar one about, you know, you don't put out a fire with more fuel, you put out a fire with yeah. the opposite, with fire, with water, yeah. not with fire. That would not help. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. And so that kind of, sometimes it's, you know, you're fighting your own instincts, right? And and you've got a two-year-old. I always say parenting, parenting a normal kid is brutal. It is just, you know, unthinkable. You know, other relationship in your life can somebody smack you in the face and you have to respond calmly, you know? that's but to a the parent of a toddler that can happen you know and so you have to be able to kind of first take that step of like that hurt I don't like it <laughs> I'm angry I don't want this behavior but to then say okay well this child's gone into this arousal state that's too high I need to stay here and explain like we don't do that here's the consequence but in that calm voice that eventually the child's going to kind of come back to to that central point like a like a magnet you just want to kind of create that this is the place that we want to be and let them come back to it I love that because that is yeah because I obviously not a big fan of just letting your kids scream and walking away because that's not bringing them back <laughs> either but I know I mean I think my daughter's record for you know, I sat next to her, remained calm yeah. and tried to bring her back, but she didn't want me touching her. Did This was when she was very young. She was two or three. Mm -hmm. And I think the record was about an hour uh, until mm -hmm. she finally was ready to come back and snuggle and go down. And I so wanted a drink after that. It was just <laughs> that moment of I'm done. But because maintaining that is hard. It is really so hard to remain... Hard regulated and, you know, calm for them to see that you're coming back and, you know, and then being able to acknowledge that her struggle isn't a reflection of me. It's just, she yeah. got 
way too high in this, you know, arousal state that she's really struggling to come back down from that. Absolutely. And I, I think that that's, that's the important thing too, is that parents be able to disconnect from their own, like, this is my identity, or this is my failure, and understand that this is a, this is a developmental normative thing, my child doesn't have a problem. They're not, there's nothing wrong with them. This is that a thing that happens at this age. And it's okay, we'll get through it. And and I, I remember many times with my kids, when they were toddlers, I used to get to a point where I would say to them, I'm doing the best I can. And it wasn't because I thought that would change how they perceived it. it was because I wanted to hear myself say it out loud. And I was talking to myself. <laughs> I regularly sit when there were little tantrums and struggles. And I just would close my eyes and be like, I am a rock in the storm. I am a rock in the yes. storm. I am rock in that I just have to remember I am supposed to be steady. The storm goes around me, but I don't move. Mm -hmm. Nothing happens. I just stay there. Yeah. And that's my goal and what I'm aiming for. So I, and I think it's important to have those mantras for ourselves because it can I really agree. help saying them out loud. We can think it, but until you say it out loud, it's not real. We can think a lot of things that don't become real unless we vocalize it. And so I think it's so important to get there. So getting back to this study though, what did you find with respect to sensitive parenting? I mean, there was this hypothesis that it might help development down the line. Did it actually work? Yeah, so I think we 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 do see that it it does seem to be um, showing up in in terms of improvements in executive functioning when the kids are kind of getting ready to start school and starting school, and that that um, we think is probably what helps them establish better emotion systems as they get older. So by the time they were a little bit further along in school, we're seeing lower levels of um, you know anxiety and, and internalizing problems in the kids. Okay, so we know that sensitive parenting affects, helps children when we're young, both through this modeling, but also just this ongoing experience of being comforted and being brought down and us kind of showing them that that's the way we go. You then have another study looking at parents, but in slightly older children. So this one I know did look at emotion development, the previous one when they were 9, 10, but you've also looked at parenting in older children age 9 to 14. So, and this is where you looked at something called synchrony. And it's another term I'll ask you to go through, even though I've talked about it a lot with people, but those that don't know, it is another physiological term here. And so you looked at how physiological synchrony between parents and children predicted emotional development in the context of parents' emotional traits, which is interesting, kind of getting back to what we just said about parents regulating. So I love it because I've always found the research on synchrony to be mixed, but it makes sense that it's mixed because I don't think you would find it just always having to go one way. And we'll talk about it in more depth in a minute. But can you tell us kind of what you what this synchrony was, what type of synchrony you were looking at, and how it did relate to these children's emotional development and behaviors in this time frame of kind of nine to 14? Yeah, absolutely. And this was a, a great research project from a former grad student had done, Christine Creevy. Um, and she was really interested in, in, in parent-child relationships. And so synchrony is something that has been a, like talked about in terms of, and, and again, you talk about these inconsistencies because it's, is it one thing 
in infancy? What about adolescence? Like how a parent and a child should interact with one another might change developmentally. And um, But it is about taking not just each individual, but asking how are they relating to each other in an interaction? And are they kind of on the same page? So a lot of the original work around synchrony was looking at kind of behaviors and it might look at affective state, like are they are, are both partners happy at the same time? Um, or are they um, engaging in a certain type of conversation at the same time? And so as you might imagine, then it, it's good when both people are happy at the same time. So this sort of idea of synchrony means we're together, we're doing what I do affects what you do, what you do affects what I do. And it's an exchange and it's this dynamic that's happening between us. It's not just that we're both present in each other's space. Um, and, and that often then you would say all these great benefits of synchrony, you know, like positive synchrony is helpful for this, that, and the other, all sorts of parenting, bonding, love, and, and romantic relationships as well. Um, but now people, you know, with this sort of increased focus on psychophysiology, people are starting to look at synchrony in other dimensions and other channels. So our body synchrony, if I am higher in arousal, are you also higher in arousal? Is that kind of something that we are sharing in this kind of co-regulatory way? And that's something that, um, you know, we had been exploring in, in the lab and that I was very interested in because I felt like this is going to be rather different than um, some of the behavioral work that we see, right? So it doesn't make sense that we would always want to have this physiological synchrony for many of the reasons we talked about already, right? Like if, if your child throws a tantrum, it's not a good idea for you to just like ramp up. Um, and so what we were looking at is sort of in, in these families, they had been brought into the lab and they actually were watching um, a video, an emotional video, either together or alone. Um, and so what we wanted to kind of understand was, did, did the nature of that video change the implications of that synchrony um, and, and how did that work? Um, and so certainly in the context of watching this negative video, this emotional scene um, that the parent and, and, and these are young adolescents together, um, we, we did find benefits, um, particularly for the child in cases where what we saw was what I call compensatory synchrony. So they are synchronous. It does matter what one person is doing does predict what the other person is doing. They're not just unconnected. But it was this idea that when one person's going more aroused, they're getting more aroused, maybe more upset or emotional about the film, the other person is coming down in their arousal. And I, I think of that as sort of creating a, a point of um, equilibrium within the relationship. So. Um, can I just ask here quickly, you yeah, say yeah. one person, can I assume it is really yeah. about the child going high and the parent going low as opposed to reversing? Well, we, we don't know that. And so that isn't something that the statistic pulls apart. So you can look at that and say, is this a dyad? Is this a relationship where the parent is doing the reacting and the compensating? But it may very well be that it's the opposite as well. And that may be in this particular case, um, you know, in nature of the 
the type of sample that we're talking about, um, because these were individuals who had been kind of exposed to trauma, it may well be that what you've got is the kid regulating the relationship. And we see that in some cases where the child, especially in kind of a, a dysfunctional situation, might be the one who takes on that role. I see mom getting upset. I'm going to calm myself down again because I know what's coming. And there's still the synchrony where they are um, linked in with each other. But it's it's perhaps more problematic. And again, depending on the age of the child for that to be the case. So if you think about a marriage couple, it could be either one, right? So if you and your partner come home and one person is like, they had a crappy day and they are in a bad mood, you're going to put your own issues on hold. You're like, mm, I'll, I'll not talk about my crappy day and I'll make dinner, you know? And so most couples create that kind of balance of like one person gets a turn <laughs> and I'll take my turn later but you kind of serve as again that anchor point of like oh you've gone way up there so I'm going to pull down and make sure you know that I'm not a threat I'm a, I'm here to support you and and eventually we'll come back together um, and in a healthy marriage right that should trade off for a healthy partnership and among adults then the question is what should it look like for a parent and child and is it you know, when, when a child is very young, it might be very appropriate for it always to be the parent who is, is doing the compensating and doing kind of the active work of making sure that equilibrium is maintained. As children get older, it might be appropriate for them to learn to take on some responsibility of maintaining a positive relationship and, and understanding how their emotions or their behaviors affect the parent as a good practice for, you know, like, yeah, those, those were young kids, but as they get into adolescence, they have to maintain peer relationships, romantic relationships, where they are going to be responsible for putting their own <laughs> issues aside to placate or to help the other person kind of cope. And so what we see in that particular study, and it was a, not a very big sample, but the, the kids who um, when that was happening, that kind of compensatory kind of um, uh, synchrony, those kids had higher emotional awareness and higher empathy. And it, so it seemed like they may have better attunement to what other people are feeling. And so they may well be the ones who were doing that kind of compensating. So do you think, I have so many questions. Um, I'm going to try and limit them here. But first off, do you think that that, emotional attunement that they had that empathy preceded this type of you know synchronous relationship either the compensatory synchronous relationship or do you think it came about as a result of having to be in a compensatory synchronous i guess i'm thinking about it in terms of kids who may be the ones driving it um but yeah. either way like do you think it comes before or as a result of or maybe a mix of both yeah, I mean, I think it is a great question and when one we do not know the answer to. And I think, you know, it may be a mix of both or it may be either or. So I think if you've got um, kids who, you know, if you think about kids in an abusive relationship, they, they often do become extremely well attuned to <laughs> cues of threat, facial cues, um, you know, and, and maybe times when they need to modify their behavior as a function of learning. And that might then develop into a skill that they 
then can um, apply in other ways. So, you know, they, for better or worse, they may be more attuned to other people's emotions. Um, but it may also be that that can be trained in, right? So if you start with this sort of empathy teaching towards children and understanding what other people's emotions are and helping them recognize, hey, you see how she's looking right now? She looks like she doesn't like what you're doing. That kind of training will then, I think, also internalize into their connections to other people. It's it again reminds me of my daughter who was always incredibly aware at a young age and I don't even want to take any credit for it. She seemed to come out <laughs> like that. So I don't even know how much of it was me. We did do all that emotion talking and kind of coaching a lot, but I swear she came out that way. But it is true. I suddenly because my first reaction to a child having to be the compensatory person, I admit I have that initial oh God, that's awful. That's a child being responsible for a parent's emotional state. But then I guess this goes back to what we said at the beginning is there's so many ways in which that can happen, that it's not just always the case that it's negative. It's not always a child who witnesses the lack of control of a parent and has to just always be the one to be in control. And I say that because again, my daughter, I'm terrified of flying. Absolutely. I am a mess on a plane. I do my best not to instill any fear in my children. And she's now old enough that the last time we flew, which was over two years ago now, but, um, you know, I got up, I had my like clutching hands and white face and she just grabbed my hand. She's like, it's okay. Mm -hmm. And just sat there kind of, she was mm -hmm. nine and just holding, you know, deep breaths, everything's okay. And I'm like, how are you so good? But we've talked about my fear, how she doesn't have to be afraid. And it was in a context of her being cognitively aware that yeah. I have an irrational fear. I, I don't know why I can work on it, but I have it and she doesn't have to have it. And it's not a reflection of her or anyone else. And so I think about that being, oh, that would be exactly that type of situation that my gut says, oh, that's horrible. And but it clearly wasn't. She knew she wasn't responsible for my emotions, but she also saw the capacity to try and help. Right. It's an act of love. It's not necessarily responsibility, right? So we, we can see even in toddlers, you know, you can do this sort of uh, empathy induction scenario where an adult pretends to be injured and they will reflexively stop what they're doing and come do kind of a caretaking behavior. And so you can see that kind of reciprocity. And it, it is just about, you know, there are times, especially you do want kids to see, to, to build that up as they get older. And I, I remember one time I had taken my son outside to show him that I had hung Christmas lights and it was December in Pennsylvania. So it was cold on the ground and we didn't have shoes and that was a mistake. And so I was trying to get, we had gone out one door and I wanted to open another door so that he didn't have to walk on the wet grass to get back. And so I ran as fast as I could to get to the front door to open it. Um, but he was very angry because I'd left him in the dark or outside. And so he's screaming at me and chasing me. Only when he arrives at the house, he found that I had taken one step inside the kitchen, slipped, fallen on my back, and I couldn't get up. And I saw his face when he arrived at the sliding glass door. He was angry and he was ready to tell me he was angry. And the minute he saw me, and knew that I was hurt, that went away and he came over and he tried to help me up off the ground. And 
that was when I thought, oh, I, but I'm doing something right as a parent. My child is going to be okay. Because most of the time, children feel very comfortable telling you that they're angry at you. you know? <laughs> and so comfortable. Think, so, yes. so. And then you think, oh, my child's angry all the time. Why aren't they regulated? And oftentimes the, the check for that is, are they doing it at school? Because oftentimes that anger they express to you, it's because they know they're unconditionally loved and they're tired and they don't have to regulate. They're saving up that regulation for their teacher and their peers. And as long as they can do it in those settings, they're fine. And the fact that they unleash on you just means they know you love them. (laughs) It is such a good reminder for families. And I always remind people of that. It's like, yeah, your kid's mad at you. They love you. Congratulations. You have a good relationship, especially when it happens at the end of the day, when they've had to regulate so much all day and you're getting the, the combination of they're tired. They've been on all day. They're just done and they need that safe space to be like i'm done and i'm just not going to be a happy camper for a while until i kind of build up a bit more something before i can calm down again it's absolutely and the hard uh, part is a lot of times as adults we feel that way at the end of the day too but (laughs) you know we switch into job two of being a parent now and you just you're always on (laughs) Always. Um, Now, one of the things in this paper that I just want to follow up on is there was a a role of caregiver acceptance of emotions, how accepting parents were of emotions and the impact on empathy in that group. So the higher acceptance of emotions found children doing better, correct? Was that? Yes. Um, So that was sort of looking at parents. really how they handle their own emotions. So are they, this was sort of taken from a questionnaire where we um, ask parents about, we're asking individuals about how they feel about having strong emotions. So um, sometimes people will say like, I I hate it when I get upset or I hate myself for getting upset. I should be able to control my emotions. Um, You know, sort of getting into that place where when we have emotions or we have negative feelings, we think that's bad. And I think you, you made a great point about this early on. That's like, of course, that's not bad. Like feelings are important. And, and I always say, that's why we go to, that's why we go to movies where we cry and someone dies. It, that's awful. Right. But we use these emotions. We need to exercise them, like going to the gym for our bodies. We go to emotions, movies that scare us because we need to feel these sorts of emotions. And so you know, when something frustrates us and we feel angry about it, that's okay. That's because that's the normal response to that. And so what that questionnaire was sort of getting at is how much does the person sort of blame themselves or think that's a weakness um, or kind of wish they didn't have these emotions. Um, And so not about their ability to regulate them, but their ability to even accept that they're normal to have these kinds of negative emotions. And what we find then, yeah, is that parents who who can't have that for themselves are not modeling it well for their child. (laughs) Not a big surprise there, I can see. And that's what I think is so important about parents being able to accept those emotions in themselves. And I think it goes back to what you said too about that ability for us to not respond out of our own triggers and distress to something because 
we're not responding in that regulated way. But I think so much of that comes from this idea that these emotions are bad. So we have to stop mm -hmm. them to bring good or calm back to the situation. Right. And, and then parents will often have that for the child to like, don't be upset. You know, well, if your child just got a major disappointment, rather than saying don't have that emotion, the emphasis is on how do we, that sucked. Yeah, I'm sorry. This sometimes these things happen. Let's do something instead. Or how do we kind of, how would you cope with that emotion um, and handle getting through something that is obviously distressing. Um, so it is, it is about acknowledging and accepting that they happen and then moving on from there. I, exactly. I love it. Okay. I hope we have time to go through. I have the last page in the parenting trajectory here as to how we're going <laughs> through this. I'm trying to bring us along here. Um, so we know that sensitive parenting helps um, in infancy, increase emotion regulation, everything later on. We know synchrony, whether it's that compensatory synchrony or the same synchrony when it comes to positive affective states and everything is important for our kids as well. And obviously you have so much more, but we also have the issue, which I think we've kind of already been talking about, but you actually have a study on it, is the issue of parental arousal on ah. children's emotional development. And this was a study that I... I was this year you just published it. So sorry, I was just looking at the, the date there. But um, it was you were looking at how parental arousal impacted how available a parent was to their child during a potentially stressful situation for the parent. So you call this, you had this term emotion parenting in this paper. And regardless of anything else of this paper, I loved that term. <laughs> I have never heard it before. I will be stealing it. Can you tell us what that even refers to as emotion parenting? Yeah. So, and and I will say this is a paper by a, a former grad student of mine who has done an exceptional amount of work, Zhu Tong Zhang, um, and she has has done a lot of projects on looking at parenting, and she's very interested in exactly that idea of, of that we've been talking about is that the parenting is about the parents' ability to regulate their own emotions, right? So we are often so focused on, you know, here's the child's problem, or this is what children are developing, and this is what they're learning, and this is what they need to do, and, and maybe focusing on the parent as a, like a concrete action. Um, but she's very interested in sort of how do parents even handle their own emotions and their own emotional arousal when their children are struggling. And so um, she's looked at this in a couple of different contexts, but um, in that particular study, these were parents you know, that she was sort of monitoring physiologically, and they're watching their child complete a task that is frustrating for the child. And so they're not there. They're not able to step in and solve the problem. They're not able to you know, tell the kid what to do. Um, and, and so really what we're kind of capturing is just how, how did that affect their own physical arousal? And what we did see is that some parents do get um, a lot more of that sympathetic arousal during the particular time than others. And that, that tends to, to be a rep reflection then of kind of how well maybe are they regulating their own emotions to these particular situations. And it can be a number of different emotions, right? Because it could be 
I'm embarrassed that my kid is behaving this way. It could be I feel bad for my child. There's sort of a, could be an empathy or a contagion sort of phenomenon, um, or it could just be a frustration of I want to solve this or why are they why are they not able to do this a particular task? Um, but but regardless of that, we want to be aware. I think that this sort of project in this line of work that that Shaitan has really persevered on is really about recognizing that we need to be aware of our own emotional arousal and the things that are making us get kind of worked up because the more worked up that we get that's when we stop seeing the like thoughtful responses so we kind of have that reflexive parental response as opposed to the one we wish we had done after we're done yelling or something and we can have you know all humans have this sort of set between here are my ideals and my intentions and then how well do my actions line up with what I intended to do they're going to be a lot more lined up if you're calm when when that's happening and so sometimes it just means really being able to say this is bothering me and you know like you had mentioned before too that sometimes saying it out loud is what makes you aware of it. Um, and that can help too. I loved this because so much of the advice today seems centered on this verbal discussion of emotions. We, and I think that's been kind of such a, I'm not saying it's not important to talk about emotions with our kids, to talk about things, but sometimes I feel like we talk too much and we don't focus on our own experiences because you can talk till the cows come home, but mm -hmm. if you are constantly stressed and triggered and reacting to those responses, it doesn't matter if the other 80% of the time you're always trying to talk it out. It's, you know, it's, I think it relates to that idea of we want to be able to say, do as I say, not as I do. But yeah. I don't think that really works really well in parenting. I think that we yeah. need to have a better handle on ourselves, And I love what you said about how so much of parenting is really about regulating our own emotions and not about our children's at all. That this arousal is crucial to our ability to, to handle this. And, you know, the examples you gave, I found really interesting because it made me think about the different kind of going back again to the beginning of you saying there's all these different reasons why we have certain behaviors. But I feel like even that trigger of feeling aroused, the repercussions of that would be different if you're aroused because you feel empathy for your child versus you're aroused because you're embarrassed by your child or aroused because you're frustrated and you just want to get in and fix it for your child. That even though we're looking at one little component of physiological arousal, because it's coming from so many different ways, the way it's going to manifest after is going to be so different. Um, in your experience, how do we even disentangle those in terms of interventions, prevention, et cetera, to work with families to help? Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, and I, absolutely, I think that the repercussions would be different in each of those scenarios, but they also, none of them would be necessarily good, right? So um, it's important to think, like sometimes we think, well, if it's empathy and I feel bad for my child, that's that's love and that's a good thing. But if it's leading you to run in and rescue and help the child escape a situation that they should persevere through, 
Um, that's about you calming yourself down. And then that child has lost an opportunity to learn how to cope with frustration, to learn how to overcome a fear, to learn how to um, persevere on a task that is challenging because you didn't want to see them in distress and you took them out of that situation to calm your own distress down. They're missing that sort of developmental task of having um, you know, to overcome something. And in, instead you could go in, it could, it could motivate you like that distress that you're feeling can motivate you to go in. It's just that you want to be able to then say, let me help you, or let me reassure you that you're on the right track or, um, you know, help them pers persevere in that. Um, so, but I think you're right. Like if it's motivated out of that empathy, you might see more of that rescue behavior that we see kind of um, contributing to anxiety in children. If it's motivated out of anger, you might see more of this sort of coercive control that's going to, that we see associated with behavior problems in children. So it's still important to say, like, to know that I'm feeling it. I'm feeling this distress right now. Maybe I need to say it out loud to myself and then do like a little quick check about what's my motivation? What's my attack? What's my goal here? What am I going to do when I go in and kind of be conscious of it? Because it is, you know, like you said, it, it can be motivating to, to engage in parenting behavior, which is important. It might be bad if you don't have any emotional <laughs> response to your child being frustrated, but you still want to know that when we are aroused, that's when we're making sort of these short reflexive, not thought through actions and and that you know you you talked about being aware that we're feeling emotions and not just talking about them and I think it is important to remember that when when that sympathetic nervous system kicks on it's not just inside your body right it's it's also improving like increasing muscle tension it's also going to lead to changes in your eyes, your jaws might clench, your voice will change. It's going to, it's affecting all these different aspects of your body that are visible to a child and that they can perceive that you have gotten stressed, even if you don't say or do anything, you know, that it's still being projected. Um, and so it is important to think, oh, I'm upset. And then it might be okay to say like, Oh, honey, mommy had a really bad day today. You <laughs> kind of like help give them a context where, yeah, I, I'm upset right now. It's not about you. I'm coping with it. Sometimes it's important to actually show your children that you do have emotions and that you do get frustrated and feel pain and let them witness you regulating it instead of just hunkering down in your brain and doing it on your own. I love that because that's such a big part of it for me when I talk to families or even just in my own world, my kids know I will come right out and be like, I'm having a bad day. And <laughs> therefore I apologize in advance. But even just saying it, the funny part is that I find personally just coming out and saying that even preemptively, I'm so much better at regulating after. It's like it's given my brain permission to be like, oh, we're having a bad day. All right. I'm going to work on this whole regulatory piece just a little bit differently than I would otherwise. And it's amazing to me if I don't acknowledge it and I try to kind of suppress, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse Absolutely. as you go. And there, there's a research study that looked at that and demonstrated very clearly that different parts of your brain activate when you put the emotion into a word 
and say what the emotion is. It's like it goes from your amygdala where all the emotional processing takes place and it just moves it forward to the prefrontal cortex where all of your decision and it is exactly, I, I think of it as exactly what you described is sort of like, it's sort of like, you know, dealing with some pain that you're in. So your, your pain, if you hurt yourself, it's sending this powerful signal to your brain. And oftentimes if you touch the area around it and kind of massage it, that will bring the pain down. And I think it's, it's your body's way of saying, oh, you're dealing with it. Okay, good. Then I'll calm down because I know I've sent you the message and you heard it. And we sort of do the same thing with emotions is it's telling you like, I'm angry, I'm angry, I'm angry, I'm angry. And if you say, oh, are you angry? <laughs> and then your body's like, yes, you heard me. So now you're handling it. That's great. I can now calm down because the message has been delivered. So it, it is almost a way of acknowledging receipt from your body that it's sending you a signal and that you got it. <laughs> I love that. I'm going to use that now. That is because it is, it is. It's your body's telling you something. And I just feel so much better just preemptively acknowledging before I get stressed, before feeling like you're going to yell, just like walking in and you know what? Today may have sucked. And that's so, <laughs> there we go. And yeah. it's going to go from there. Yeah. Um, my last thought here, and I am so sorry, I've kept you so beyond and I hope that's okay. Yeah, but yeah. my last thought here was I was thinking about this study in particular about the physiological arousal. And even as you said, even when it's personal distress coming into play through the form of empathy there, it feels like this could be one of these areas in which we see cycles of struggle between parents and children going cross generation generationally, pardon me. Um, because I feel like so much of those struggles, the inability to regulate comes from what you've been finding in all these other studies that we don't have it modeled to us. So therefore mm -hmm. we don't get it. Then we have children who I have argued many times before, you don't know how many triggers you have until you have children um, <laughs> for being aroused at numerous, you know, ways of anger, but also joy and everything else. But it is, you don't know what that's like till you have your children. And so if it's all maladaptive patterns that come back to us, because we haven't had this, it feels like it just perpetuates. So outside of becoming aware, I mean, I guess this goes right to your work on prevention and intervention of getting in there. But can I ask you for one what is one great piece that parents might be able to take home to work on? I mean, you've already given somebody in terms of vocalizing and everything, but if they're finding it hard, what is something they might be able to take that might work a bit for the struggles of overcoming when you didn't have that modeled yourself? Yeah, so I think you raise an interesting point um, because there is this sort of reflexive repetition, right? So like, this is how I was raised. I turned out fine. This is how it should be done. Or even not thinking about it at all. Like just, this is what I've seen happen. And so I kind of respond. Um, and, and that can be challenging, especially in co-parenting, right? Because you've got a partner who has a whole different set of issues <laughs> that are important. And now you've kind of crossed over. But, um, but I think there can also be a negative effect of having this sort of reactive anti-response to how you were parented, right? So my dad did this, I will never do that because I will never put my kid through that. And it, I think at some point you have to, to realize by choosing to define your parenting behavior around your parents, either against what they did or for what they did, 
you're haunted by that. You're not letting yourself make a choice. You're being dictated by it. So even people who think I will never do this because my parents did this, they're still letting their parents' parenting control all of their choices. And that's probably not the best way to do it, right? Because the best way would be to just wash all that clean and say, how do I want to parent my kid, this kid, this child who has these emotional parameters who might need this type of response and in without being without carrying all that baggage behind of like I'll never put them through what I went through well they aren't you and they haven't they're not going to go through what you went through so don't let that be the defining framework for every decision you make because that's still about you and so I think having a moment of really clarifying reaching some clarity for yourself of what are my values what do I want for my child and then thinking about how how do I achieve that um, and and without letting some of these other kind of experiences cloud that because the child doesn't have any of that baggage yet <laughs> so you're not you're bringing it all in and I think the, the one thing I guess I would say is I think people are really really sensitive around their parenting it's a very personal thing um, and so it's not something they're very keen to seek advice about. And oftentimes, even when you've got, you know, a situation where they do go to a therapist or to somebody for help, it's because they think there's something wrong with the child, right? And so people are often, they want to believe, oh, it's, you know, my child has a disorder. They don't want to feel guilty or responsible. Um, I, I think the best advice that I could give is to just be open to growing as a parent and to know that you were not ever trained to be a parent we don't go to school for this like you know we just get thrown this infant and we have to figure out what to do and what you see another parent doing with their kid might work great for that kid and it is not going to match with what your kid's temperament is um, and so that that is why i also try to tell parents like do not judge other parents because you your kid will get older or you'll have a second kid and you'll realize that they didn't do anything wrong. It was not their fault. So. Oh my God. I, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I remember I would have shared this with families before, but I swore it was all me. Why my daughter was such a great eater. Like, I mean, she eats everything <laughs> she does. And I, I took all the credit for that. I thought I was just queen bee of, you know, I, I ate various things. I was breastfeeding. So there was different times. We always did lots of sampling of everything. And then I had my son did exactly the same thing. And the kid has a palate of like five foods. And, yeah, absolutely. and I was just like, oh, yeah, it had nothing to do with me. She just likes food, is an adventurous right. eater and different flavors. She's willing to try anything. And it is so true that you just step back because we have no idea what people are going through or what their triggers are or anything else. But I do love or that idea. The nature of their kid is. So everyone's just yeah. trying to get through their day and what gets you through the day. And everybody feels positive and loving. If that means, you know, fewer food fights over trying new things, then that's, that's fine. You know? <laughs> so I think parents should feel like going to a, seminar on parenting strategies, listening to a podcast for ideas, you know, these are things we should, we should be trying to learn new ideas and strategies and growing. And if somebody makes a suggestion or gives you feedback to just not 
feel so personally connected to it and, and be open to changing. I love it. And I just love, again, that reminder that, you know, so often we want to pin it on our children. We want to pin the problems on our kids instead of being able to look and say, well, maybe we can grow a little or I'm not responsible for my child's emotions, but I am responsible for my own. And that's such a hard lesson because I don't think our culture is supportive of it. I mean, I'll be honest. Mm -hmm. I think we do live, at least those of us in a Western culture where, you know, we judge other people by their children. And you yeah. see it and it's so wrong, but that is what we do. You mm -hmm. see a child act out, oh, bad parenting. And you're like, it's they're, they're two. That's what they do at that age. It's And yet we go towards this judgment. So I see why parents feel that way all the time. Right. Or feel threatened if, you know, if somebody said, if a teacher is saying your child is, you know, acting out in class, the sort of default response of protecting, no, my child, there's not, my child didn't do anything wrong. Like there's something wrong with your class or you're handling my child's sensitive needs wrong. Instead of hearing that and saying, let's, let's work together. What should I be doing differently? Can I be doing something at home that would help you reinforce what you need him or her to be doing in the classroom? And, um, and just having that openness to like, I could grow as a parent here and work together with this teacher instead of being, because I think that defensiveness is about feeling like, oh, I didn't do anything wrong as a parent. So, <laughs> oh, completely, completely. I actually, last anecdote, but I had this happen just the other day. My son went to camp, he's five. And first day, it was a bit of, he was a little wild, not really listening and everything. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I felt the defensiveness, that first bit of, okay. and, but then we, we got tired. And luckily, I know the, the, counselor so well she's just lovely and um took a look and we're like okay what can we do and we'll talk to him but also took a look and i'm like oh he didn't eat anything oh, that yeah. day and as soon as we realized that i'm like okay i have to make lunch more appealing for him whatever he needs to eat i don't again picky eating um don't care i'm gonna yeah. make it work and i hadn't put a heat like a cooling pad in and of course it was really hot so by lunchtime half his food like was not that appealing anymore appealing. because <laughs> it had been half cooked and it was you know but had i not had i just gotten defensive Mm -hmm. we wouldn't have looked at it. And they acknowledged too that on their end, a lot of kids didn't eat that day. So they had to restructure how they do food times with these kids who are clearly just so excited to play. They don't want to sit down and eat for anything. Right. <laughs> and lo and behold, you know, we've had two more days and everyone's great. They're eating, coming home with empty lunchboxes and it's all been a much more peaceful. And I'm including cold pads and everything and giving him lunches that sometimes make me go, ah, but he eats it. So that's what we do to make it work. And it is, it is such a learning and growth. And now I take it and I'm like, well, now I've got one more thing to keep in mind when he goes somewhere, what do I need to be aware of to make sure that hunger doesn't become a trigger for him in terms of arousal, right? And so I do view, if you can view all these scenarios and challenges as hard as they are, as a learning experience, it is such a better way to go. And, and it's not saying you're always wrong. Sometimes that teacher is wrong. Sometimes it's yeah. both. Sometimes there's <laughs> another cause altogether. But if we're defensive, we never get to find that out. You have to yeah. take that moment to actually get it there. 
Oh, thank you. That is very wise. Um, so before we go, I, I want to thank you so much for sharing just this tidbit of your research here. Um, may I ask? So much fun. <laughs> oh, good. I'm so happy whenever people say that because I want it to be fun because I get so excited to dive into people's research because it gives me that feel that I get to be like, I kind of get to go back and do all this research that looked so cool that I would have done, but I can't go back now. I'm too old for that. <laughs> um, but uh, what are you able to say anything of the projects that you're working on now? Um, you know, just a lot of them. There's a lot of balls in the air. We're still continuing with our families whose kids are turning 18. And I think that's going to be um, just a really great opportunity to really look at some of these um, things that kind of transpire over the the full life course, especially getting into those sort of adolescent outcomes and um, and what we can learn about what happens early and how that that works. But um, but yeah, there's a lot a lot on the horizon. <laughs> With COVID ending, well, I'm not sure it's ending even, but I guess some things have opened up a bit for research. I know that's put a bit of a wrench in a lot of research plans for people because. Have. <laughs> yeah. It has required some creativity <laughs> for sure. I and for you, because of the physiological research, it's not like you can set your questionnaires up online and yeah. still recruit people. It's been a challenge. Um wow. but yes, it's um some of the biological measures we get, we can, you know, get samples of saliva and things like that, but it's uh it's been a struggle. <laughs> wow. Well, I thank you so much again. This has been so wonderful. And I can't wait to read what comes out from the family life study there for that 18 years. That is insane. But that's what's so great about research. Like where else can you follow people for unless you're the BBC following those English <laughs> for whatever it is 60 years yeah. now. But um, yeah, it is truly incredible. So thank you so much for sharing your work and everything. And I will have to get you on again to go over the rest of all of this, especially that family life study when, uh, when you have it all done. Great. Thanks. I would love it. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you're interested in finding out more about prevention and intervention to help with children's development, please check out the Penn State Prevention Science Research Center, where the findings of Dr. Gatsky-Kopp's work, amongst others, is shared and translated into programs and ideas for families and those working with families. I'm off for two weeks now, but I will be back in those two weeks with one of my favorites and one of yours, Dr. Jim McKenna. Until then, stay safe and happy parenting.